Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Good to be with you again tonight. Good to see a good crowd here tonight. That's great. Turn to 2 Kings, if you would, chapter 22. Uh, while you're turning there, I, I told a joke up in New York. I was preaching in Rochester, New York, and nobody laughed. Nobody laughed because they didn't understand the terms. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys are on top of this. I'm sure you get it, but let's find out. How many know what a mater is? Anybody know what a mater is? Good, I'm glad I'm covering this. That's a tomato. And a tater. Anybody know what a tater is? How many know that one? That's a potato. How about a nanner? How many know what a nanner is? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you know a nanner is a banana. Well, down in, we moved down to Alabama, and of course, you've probably heard of the rivalry between Auburn and Alabama. They are nuts down there. I mean, I'm from Michigan, and living in Michigan, whether you were for the blue or the green, it made no difference. You, always, you wanted both of them to win until they got to the big game, because that would make it a really big game. I mean, if the team I was rooting for didn't win, I at least want the other team to win. And that just made things more exciting in the state, not down there. Down there, they want the other team to lose every game. Matter of fact, if they got beat really bad. They would be happy about it. It's amazing. I was telling the pastor this afternoon that 20%, no, no, that's not right, 40% of my church are Alabama fans, and 40% of my church are Auburn fans. And they're avid fans for their school. Now, the other 20% of us, for instance, my favorite, my favorite team is whoever's playing Notre Dame. That's who I'm rooting for. I don't care who they are. And I've been asked that question, and I could say, well, I never want to see the Catholics win anything, but the reality is they always... They always used to beat uh, Michigan and Michigan State. That's why I hated them, just like I couldn't stand the Packers because they always beat the Lions. But anyway, um, I, I heard this story. I mean, it's unbelievable in, in, in the very beginning of the story simply because it talks about a graduate of Auburn, a graduate of Alabama, been good friends. They were riding around in a truck and, you know, talking about the good old days. And the Bama guy said, who was in the passenger seat, he said, listen, before you take me home, I need to stop at the grocery store. I need two maters, a tater, and a nanner. And, um, and so the Auburn guy pulled into the store, and the Alabama guy went in. He said, I, I, I need two maters, a tater, and a nanner. And the guy behind the counter says, you're a graduate of Alabama, aren't you? He said, how could you tell that? He said, by the way you talk. You mean I said I want two maters, a tater, and a nanner, and you knew I was a graduate of Alabama by the way I talked? And he said, Sure. So the guy gets his stuff, he goes back out in the car, the Auburn driver, he goes driving down the road, and he says, you know, it was amazing back there. I went in, I said, I want two maters, a tater, and a nanner, and that guy said I, that he knew he was, I was a graduate of Alabama by the way I talked. He, he said, do you think anybody can tell? And the Auburn guy said, I don't know. He pulls into a store, he gets out, goes inside, and he says, I want two maters, a tater, and a nanner. And the guy said, you're a graduate of Auburn, aren't you? He said, how could you tell that by the way I talk? He said, no, this is a hardware store. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You can see, depending on the crowd, I don't have to worry about it up north, but down south, depending on the crowd, determines who's driving and who the passenger is. <laughs> anyway, uh, chapter 22 of the book of 2 Kings. 
Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah Boshkath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the eighteenth year of Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Now skip down to verse 18 for the sake of time. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I wonder how many churches you can go into today where you can't find a Bible. Imagine that. This is the house of the Lord. And in the house of the Lord, the book had been there. But they didn't read it. They didn't have anything to do with it. And they hadn't for a long, long time. This is a sad situation. I mean, you wonder, what did the priest do? I mean, don't you wonder, what did the priest do? I wonder what the pastors do that don't have a Bible. What is the point if you don't have the Bible? All you can give them is your own reasoning. And the Bible says there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Well, let's get back to the story here. And Elkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king, and brought the king word again, and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. Now skip down to verse 16 to find out what the message from God is. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But, and I love that when you see that word, but, that's a tremendous word in the Bible. I mean, you've got a number of statements in the word of God. Like, for instance, in the book of Romans chapter 5, he says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he says, For a good man, some would even dare to die, but... God commended his love toward us 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've just had an announcement of judgment. But then it says, But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall ye say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me. I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered unto the grave in peace. And thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. Now, if you like messages with points, there's only one. And it's the title of the message. When was the last time that you individually trembled at the word of God? When was the last time I want this to be not just a truth encounter as it always should be in the house of God. But I want it to be for each one of us a me encounter with God and his word. When was the last time you trembled at the word of God? Father, I come before you for these dear people we meet together. I don't know them. I've met some. I've learned a couple of names. But Lord, I don't know them. You do. I know you know me. Heavenly Father, I want to have a right attitude toward the Word of God. I want it to affect me as you want the Word of God to affect me. And God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. We'd consider where we're at in our Christian walk. And may the fear of the Lord guide us. You said the Lord is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints. So I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd do so. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Now think about Josiah, the king. At this particular point, the northern kingdom's been carried off. At this particular point, you realize that as king of Judah, he is king of the only nation that actually claims Jehovah God as their God. There's no other nation on earth. But here's the problem with them. They had lived so long apart from the word of God that they were not serving the Lord as they were supposed to serve the Lord. The house of God was in disrepair. And when they find the word of God, they're actually surprised at what it has to say. Now, they would have claimed Jehovah God is their God, but they really didn't have a clue as to who he really is. And I think it's that way with a lot of people in our nation today, and unfortunately, with a lot of people in our country we talk so much about the God of love, but unfortunately, our definition of love follows along more with Hollywood than it does with us, saith the Lord. It is true that God is love. But you've got to read the Bible to find out what he means by that. Because he is the God who also brought wrath upon these people and promised wrath upon them because of their disobedience to God's word. Well, he had some men clean up the house of God. While they're cleaning it up, they find the book of the law. Now, that could be all the New Test or Old Testament up to that particular point. It could be simply the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's also called the law. 
More than likely, though, it was probably simply the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, one of the most often quoted books, even in the New Testament. The book, by the way, that the Lord Jesus used as his weapon against Satan in that first temptation in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. All three times he answered the devil with the book of Deuteronomy. Several years ago, I wanted to have a Bible reading night. And so I told the men, I said, all of you who'd like to come out, we're going to read through the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we met, 17 men met with me. We sat around a table and then uh, each person would read five verses and then the next person would read. And we did that until we finished the book. It took four hours and 15 minutes to read through the whole book of Deuteronomy. Now that's why I think particularly when it says here that they had found the book of the law, that they were not talking about the Pentateuch. That would have been a long time for him to have read through, for them to have read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then Deuteronomy. I believe they read to him the book of Deuteronomy. Can you imagine? If you'd have come to church today and you get the announcement, Brother Mike Allison has come from Madison, Alabama, and I got up and said, turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, and we started reading in verse 1. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I finished. I wonder how many would still be sitting here. I mean, for a while, let's face it, you'd be doing this. You'd look over at your partner. You'd look across the church to wonder what in the world is going on. Well, these people found the book of the law, and they actually started to read it. And when they read it, they didn't like the news of it. This second giving of the law told not only about the law, but told about judgments that would come upon Israel if they disobeyed God. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 26, when he says, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if ye will obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, a curse if ye will not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which ye have not known. They said to one another, The king needs to hear this. They go into the throne room. And they read the whole book of Deuteronomy to the king. And he's not asleep, and he's not even sleepy. As he hears those words, in the book of Deuteronomy, there was a list of blessings if when they got in the land, they obeyed the word of God, and a list of curses if they did not obey the word of God. And from right after Joshua, after they've taken over the land, You start in the book of Judges, and from that very first book with them in the possession of the land, they disobeyed God right at the very beginning. As soon as Joshua's dead, they went off into the gods of the lands. And so God would have to send down the Philistines, or he'd send down the Amalekites, or he'd send down the Midianites or the Ammonites to put them in bondage for anywhere from 7 to 40 years. And then finally they'd cry out to God for forgiveness. God would bring in a judge who would deliver them. And again, they would turn to do that which was right in their own eyes and that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the whole process would be repeated over and over again, even when the kingdoms were divided. Do you know of the 19 kings? There were 19 kings that reigned in the northern kingdom. And the Bible says of every one of those kings that they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. There were 19 kings who reigned over Judah. 
Only nine of those kings does it say they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Ten of those kings, it says they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And one of the sad parts about that is the one who reigned the longest was the wickedest. And that was Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Well, anyway, so they read through the book of the law. And while they're reading that, the king is listening to the message. And even though evidently no one had been preaching the word of God out there, he believed what God said. And he believed that God meant it the way he said it. We got too many preachers out there that want to make allegories and pictures about everything. When the reality is God wrote what he meant, he meant what he wrote, and he meant it the way he wrote it. You take the books of prophecy. Do you realize that every prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled exactly as God said it would be fulfilled? I believe we have every right to expect that every prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be fulfilled exactly the same way. Well, anyway, as Josiah heard this, he began to become fearful. We had disobeyed God. God promised his wrath. When in chapter 28, they read through that long list of curses, he had already seen in their history that many times those curses had come to fruition and it was going to come again and that God would remove them from the land. He rips at his clothes and he says to them, Go and inquire of the Lord what the result of this is going to be. So they send off. They get the message from God. And God says, I'm going to do exactly what I said. I am going to pour out my wrath upon this nation. But to the king, because you humbled yourself, because you rent your clothes, you're not going to see it. You'll die before I do it. You get to die in peace because you trembled yourself before me. Turn over for a moment to Isaiah. Keep your hand here and we'll come back to it. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. You say, why would God answer him? Because he humbled himself and trembled at what he heard. And it's because God always keeps his word. I want you to notice in verse 2 of Isaiah 66. It says, For all those things which hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. You say, preacher, that's in the Old Testament. Yeah, and the last time I looked, the Old Testament was part of my Bible. God's message is still plain. When David got right with God in Psalm 51, he says, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God looks to people who get broken over their sin. You don't find many tears at the altar today. It used to be when people came to the altar, 
they were broken. Today, they come to the altar chewing their gum. They kneel for a little while, and they skip back to their seat as if everything's fine. The reality is, too many times we treat our invitations like the Catholics treat the confessional booth. We go in, we tell God, yep, we did it. Now I'll say my Hail Marys, and I'll cross myself a few times, and everything will be all right, and I plan on doing it again next week too. The Bible says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. So my question is then, when was the last time that you trembled at the word of God? When was the last time your preacher or an evangelist got up and spoke? And as he spoke, it was like there was nobody else in the auditorium but you and God. And you understood that that word that was being preached was right at your sin. Not that the preacher had that in mind, but the Spirit of God did. And as you sat there broken, you couldn't wait until the invitation was given so you could come forward and get right with Him. You see, I'm afraid we've allowed our invitation time to become as formal and dead as most other church services. It's just something we do because we've always done it. But the invitation times came about because people were broken. And they truly got right over their sin. Now, what's behind that? Well, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But get this, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the Word of God declares, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In Psalm 89 and verse 7, The Lord is greatly to be feared in the assembly of His saints. In Proverbs 8, 13, The fear of the Lord is... I want you to get this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In Psalm 36 and verse 1, the transgression of the wicked, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The command in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17 is fear God. We have such a soppy, soapy version of love that we think God really doesn't care. Too many of our young people and too many of our Christians think that God is like some old man with a white beard sitting up in heaven saying, that's all right, children, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. We need to understand how God means His Word. Now I can give you some examples. Turn over to the book of Numbers a moment, Numbers chapter 15. And let's see if we can get, get an idea of what does God mean by His Word when He says something. How serious is He? I mean, we can't treat this book like the buffet table where we pick out the parts that we want and we leave the other parts back. Either God means all of His Word or He doesn't. In Numbers, I did say Numbers, didn't I? Good. Numbers chapter 15. Sometimes I say something 
But I'm thinking of something else, and I can't remember what my mind was thinking or what my mouth said. So if I say something that makes absolutely no sense like what I just said, you know I'm having one of those moments. Notice verse 32. Scripture says, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that, and this is key, underline it, that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation, and they put him in ward, that's a holding cell, because it was not declared what should be done to him. Now you know that the Bible had said God had told them that they were to do no work on the Sabbath day. Now you might say, well preacher, we we don't go by that today. Well, God tells us in the book of Exodus chapter 31 that the Sabbath day was given to the Jews for all of their time. That was not something that was given to the New Testament church. The New Testament church meant on the day of the resurrection. The Sabbath day commemorated God's day of rest. And by the way, they didn't just worship on the Sabbath day. They worshiped all the time. It was just simply a command about not working on the Sabbath day as a day of rest. So even if you wanted to keep the Sabbath, Sabbath was Saturday. It's always been Saturday. The day of the Lord is Sunday, the first day of the week. It is the day of the Lord's resurrection from the dead. Now, you already know that. and you, I didn't need to tell you probably, but I just thought I'd share it with you. So here, here we are. They're in the wilderness. They've had God's commands for a little while now, several months. And uh, here's a man who is out gathering sticks. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why he was gathering sticks. Maybe he was gathering sticks to clean up the yard in front of his tent. I don't know. Maybe he was gathering sticks to simply maybe tripped over one and he wanted to pick some up. Maybe he was gathering sticks to simply get ready to build a fire. We don't know why he was gathering sticks. God doesn't tell us he wasn't stealing sticks. He was gathering sticks, and he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. So they bring him to Moses, and God hadn't told them what to do with anybody that disobeyed this part of God's law. And so they put him in ward, the Bible says, and Moses went to God, the God of love, to find out what they should do. What do you think that he's going to do? By the way, Don't get confused. You say, well, they were under the law, we're under grace. No, they got saved by grace the same way we did. Everybody throughout all time that's gotten saved, before the law, during the law, after the law, after the crucifixion, all of that have always been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But let me get back to this. So notice back here in the verse, In verse 35, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. So the man gets stoned to death at the command of God. He was not stealing from the treasury of the people of Israel. He was not committing fornication. He had not killed anybody. God said, don't do this thing on the Sabbath day. Work. Doesn't make any difference what kind of work it was. He did it, and God says he was to be stoned to death. Now, I wonder, if we could call that man back from the dead today and ask him, 
Did you learn anything from that? I think we might get an answer like this. Yes, God means exactly what He says. And we are to obey it. Now, you're getting quiet on me. Don't scare me. Go over to Numbers chapter 20. Let me show you another. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. Oh, Moses has had to put up with these people complaining. By this time, man, we're getting close to a lot, a couple of years, several years have passed. A lot of complaining has passed. Numbers of things have been done. And notice in verse 7, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye, notice, you might underline, speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation, and there be strength. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, he's okay so far, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Well, now, if we stopped reading right there, everything seems to be fine. But before I read the rest of this, I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, God did not tell him to hit the rock. The first time that something like this happened, God had him smite the rock, and God gave water out of that. God did not tell him to hit the rock. By the way, he also did not tell him not to. I just want you to remember that. Now, I know the theologians will say, well, rock was smitten, or Christ, who is the rock, uh, was smitten once for sins forever in his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Moses was destroying the type. Moses didn't have a New Testament. I don't know how much of that he understood. But not only that, he was simply to speak the rock, and notice what he doesn't do. He, he doesn't give God credit for bringing the water. He gives himself. Must we fetch water out of this rock for you? Notice what takes place. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Forty years he walks around with these people. There are a number of times that had it not been for Moses' prayer, they would have been destroyed. And God would have raised up a people unto Moses. He had put up with so much from these people, he finally had it. He cracked, and he got in his emotion. And many times you get caught up in your emotion, you could be headed for trouble. It's one of the reasons why James tells us that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You say, what about the wrath of God? His wrath is always wrath under control, always. Our anger is not always under control, but his anger is always under control. And now because... He didn't glorify God in that situation. He smote the rock. He didn't give God the credit for it. God still gave the people the water. But now Moses would not be able to enter into the land that he had been looking forward to 
for 40 years. Moses, did you learn anything from that? Yeah, God means exactly what he says. And he means it severely. Well, let me give you another. Go over to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is king. And he has... The ark of God is not in the city of David yet. And he's wanting to bring the ark of God up to the city of David. Now, he's got a plan for that. If you notice, beginning in verse 1, it says, And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. You remember, remember when Hophni and Phinehas had brought the ark of God into the battle against the Philistines, because the glory of God had already departed in their sin, God had the Philistines take the ark of God, as well as killing Hophni and Phinehas, and they took the ark down to their capital city, to the temple of Dagon, the fish god, because, um, and, and they did it, by the way, on a cart pulled by oxen. Now, they're getting the ark back. Remember, there was a great turmoil and disease that struck the Philistines. They had sent it back to Israel that way, and it had stayed there until now David's bringing it home. It says, And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviner, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, If you send the ark of God to Israel... I'm in First Samuel. I'm sorry. That's funny. Both of those deal with the same idea. In First Samuel, they're bringing it back to the children of Israel. In Second Samuel... David is bringing it up to Jerusalem. So now I should be at the right chapter. Chapter 6. And again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all of his house played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God, and David was displeased. Now, there are a number of problems in this story. One is, and there's nothing wrong with David wanting the ark of God up in the city of David. That's fine. But God had already given his instruction in the book of Deuteronomy and also in the book of Leviticus how the ark was to be moved. It was not to be touched by human hands. With the ark of God, there were rings on each corner of the ark. The priest had long poles that they were to that were covered in gold that they were to put through those rings on the ark and the priest were to bear the ark up on their shoulders and that's how the ark was to be moved any place at all 
Nobody was to touch it. God had said in His Word, if they touched it, they would die. Now, this is serious stuff. But they're not carrying it that way. They put the ark of God on a cart. And it's being pulled by these oxen. Now, you've got Ohio and Uzzah. Now, you can only imagine how excited they are. I mean, with this gigantic service that is going on, the king is praising God. The king is jumping around in front of him. The people are thrilled. The music, everybody's glorifying God, and they're saying, praise the Lord. Now, they're doing all that in disobedience because they're not moving the ark the way they're supposed to move the ark. And as those oxen pull that cart, one of the oxen stumble. And as that oxen stumbles, the cart begins to shake. The ark of God begins to wobble. There is a danger that it may fall in the dust of the earth. How horrifying that would be to anybody. And as Uzzah sees it, I personally believe, Pastor, if I had been Uzzah, I would have done exactly the same thing. I believe most every man here, had you been walking by that cart, and you saw it begin to wobble, you would have reached up and touched it as well. But God had said if anybody touched it, they would die. And as soon as he touched that ark of God, God killed him right there. Now I wonder, if we could bring Uzzah back from the dead today, and ask him the question, Uzzah, did you learn anything from that experience? I think we might get a reply like, yes, God means exactly what he says. I want you to get this. There is no good excuse to do that which God says you're not to do. You mean God would rather have had the ark of God fall into the dirt? No, he'd rather that they carried it right to begin with. Situational ethics... Do not please the Lord. When was the last time that you trembled at the word of God? Now, you say, preacher, you know, that's in the Old Testament. I know. Did God do anything like that in the New Testament? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, he did. In Acts chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, you find a number of the Christians selling their own property and possessions and bringing it into the church and giving it because there was a famine going on as well as some persecution. And there were many of the saints that were hurting and they were giving that to the church so that all of, pardon me, all of God's people could be taken care of. Ananias and Sapphira see what's going on in Acts chapter 5. And they're excited about it. They say, we got some land, let's sell it. They sold the land. I don't know how much of it they gave. The Bible doesn't tell us how much they gave. I've heard that they were the first five percenters. I think they gave more than five percent. I even believe they gave more than a tithe. They probably gave half of it, but when they had so much money, they decided to make a deal between themselves that they were only going to put so much money in the offering and say that's what they sold the land for. That's the problem. They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. A lying, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, the scripture says in the book of Proverbs. 
Here they are in the early days of the church. They don't have a New Testament yet. It's not been written. None of it's been written yet. And uh, man, these have been exciting days in the church. And they put it down there, and Peter says, did you sell the land for so much? And Ananias said, yes. And he died right there. God killed him, and they carried him out. Three, days, uh, three hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't know that her husband is dead. And Peter asked her the question, did you sell the land for this much? Yes, we did. Well, the same guys that carried your hubby out. I'm paraphrasing now, you understand. The same guys that carried your hubby out, they're going to carry you out. And God killed her right then. This couple saved by grace. I don't have any doubt. They were ushered immediately into heaven. But what an embarrassing way to show up in heaven. Because even as bad as what it was, lying to God and lying to the Holy Ghost, salvation is forever. Amen? But the point is, God killed Ananias and Sapphira because of their disobedience and terrible sin of lying. And when was the last time that you trembled at the word of God? I wonder if God dropped dead some people today in our churches who lied about their giving. I wonder if the offerings wouldn't skyrocket. I think about it. Okay, well, that's one preacher. Are there any more? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, let me show you. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 11. And uh, these people are not named, but it's very, very plain what he means. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. These people had not done things like they were supposed to. And so he is straightening them out on how to conduct the Lord's Supper and what it means. He makes this statement. He says in verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now get this. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. One church, Church of Corinth, he's giving this instruction. You better not partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. That bread represents the body of Christ. That juice represents the blood of Christ. You better make sure your life's right with God. He says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat. Make sure that you're right with God. And he says to the Corinthians, hey, that's the reason you've got so many sick folks. He was not saying that everybody in the congregation that got sick got sick because they defiled the Lord's Supper. He is not saying that everybody that had died, died because they partook of the Lord's Supper. But this is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit of God moved upon Paul to write this. We know this is true. Although not every sick person was for that reason, there were many, not one or two, there were many that were sickly, and that was the reason. And there were many in their congregation that had died, and that was the reason for it. I'm just simply saying, God means 
exactly what he says. Now, I warn our people, because when it comes to the Lord's Supper, to me, this is always a very special time. It's a somber time. And in our church, I have all the children sit with their parents during the Lord's Supper. I want the parents to watch over them. They know their children. Number one, if they're not saved, they can't partake. And if they're not found the Lord in, in believers' baptism, they cannot partake. But the parents need to teach them that this is a very special time of making sure that you are right with the Lord. I have had some people, I, I don't know this ever happened to you, Pastor, but I've had some people who, when the, when the bread was passed, wouldn't take it. Now, obviously, they felt things weren't right in their life. And they think somehow that's spiritual. That's not what it says. It says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. In other words, if your sin is so important to you, that you're not willing to glorify the death of Christ, His body and His blood, man, there's something wrong with you. Every one of God's children should be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Get it right! If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the introduction. Now to the point. Smile at me. Let me know you're still with me. Are you okay? All right. Very good. When was the last time that you trembled at the Word of God? Well, let's find out what Jesus says about His Word. Go over to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. I don't believe this morning I gave you my life's verse. I didn't have this verse as my life's verse the first few years of my salvation. But as I studied the Word of God and got in the Word of God, my life's verse became Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Too many of us will say we believe the Bible, but we can tolerate people who differ. That's not what God says, not what the psalmist said. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. You see, I hate evolution. It is a lie. It denies the very truth that God is creator of everything. Evolution denies, since it all happened by cells dividing and the different things that took place, which is pure absurdity, that it all begins with a big bang and somehow dead dirt spawned life, that makes no sense at all. Life doesn't come out of explosions. Death comes out of explosions of live things. What nonsense. But anyway, it says... Uh, God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. I believe this. Anything that God says anything about, he's right. And if I feel differently, I'm wrong. You get that? If I feel differently, I am wrong. Well, look what Jesus thought of the Word of God in chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Notice, beginning in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. 
I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore, now let's stop right there for just a second. He said, till heaven and earth pass. Has heaven and earth passed? It hadn't, has it? Guess what? God's word is still good. According to Jesus. Verse 19. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, so that you know that salvation is not wrapped up in your works, he makes that very plain in verse 19. He says, for those who don't obey or keep uh, the least of the commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They're still going to heaven. And those that keep them and teach them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the point. When I read through this, it says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, I have a question. Which ones are the least of the commandments? Do you know which ones are the least of the commandments? That bothered me for a long time, but I think I figured it out. Which ones, you know, is it two, five, eight? Which ones are the least? I'll tell you, it's like this. I know you've never heard this, Pastor. I've heard a bunch of times. The problem, Pastor, is you're always preaching on the little things. They're not that big of a deal. You've never heard that? Oh, I'm sorry. I figured Yankees were better than Southerners. I mean, <laughs> Southerners are naturally rebels. That's the name they took for themselves, isn't that right? The least of the commandments. The least of the commandments are the ones that I break. The greatest of the commandments are the ones that everybody else breaks. That's the way we are. What do you think Jesus wanted? He wanted obedience. Let me ask you, is there anything in the Word of God, I'm not talking about the traditions of men, I'm saying is there anything in the Word of God that Jesus disobeyed? Nothing. Is there anything that God said in the Word of God that Jesus didn't like? I mean, I've heard people say, well, preacher, we can't enjoy ourselves having to live by God's Word. They think that it's some kind of, of like being chained and your life is misery if you live by the Word of God. Jesus lived by it. Was He miserable? Come on now, think with me. The next time you try to explain away what God has said in His Word, did he mean that for me? Well, all these rules. You just can't enjoy life with all the... Um, let's see. There are a lot of people played football today. A lot of people played football yesterday. You know what about every one of those games? They have rules. As a matter of fact, every one of those games, they have about eight or nine people plus people with cameras looking down on the field to make sure you keep the rules. To make sure the players keep the rules. If a guy's running down the sideline trying to go in for a touchdown, if just the very teensy-weensy side of his shoe touches the chalk on the out-of-bounds line, the referee blows his whistle, 
out of bounds, plays over. He doesn't get into the end zone. If a person commits a penalty, something that in the rules he's not allowed to do, they not only blow the whistle, they give the guy's number in front of thousands of people in the stands, millions of people watching on TV. The announcers talk about who it was that did it, and they re-show it over again. And you notice those players don't go running home saying, well, that's just not right. They're always exposing everything I do. You just can't enjoy the game of football anymore because they've got all these rules we got to keep. Do you know there's a store, I don't know if you've got one up here, called Toys or Us. You know something about the toys? They have games. Why do people buy games? They buy games to have fun. Do you know that every one of those games have rules? As a matter of fact, every one of those games is defined by its rules. That's what makes it that game. So don't tell me that God's rules make your life miserable. You're only miserable at God's rules because of your rebellious heart. You get right with God and you'll love to obey Him. Jesus said in John chapter 17, Thy word is truth. In John 8, He said, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The reason there's such bondage out there is we do not want to obey God's Word. When was the last time you trembled at the Word of God? Now, go over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Listen, to me, to me this is so fundamental and elementary. But because we've got a worldly, soppy, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, idea of the person of God, we think God just put his word out there. If we like it, fine. If we don't like it, hey, that's okay. It doesn't matter. We're living under grace today. And that's not the God of this book. Now, I'm going to give you some New Testament verses. Romans chapter 1, notice verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Whenever I see that term, wrath of God, I know that's serious. I know, buddy, if there's anything I better pay attention to, is something that has to do with the wrath of God. I would not want the wrath of God down upon me in any way. I would hate to think that I would actually make God pour His wrath upon me. I want Him to be pleased with me. Notice the wrath of God is against, now notice what it doesn't say, is against some ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does it say? All. Do you know what all means? All. Well, now we got another problem. What is unrighteous? Because to some people, that's your idea. Okay, preacher, that's your preference. And this preacher over here, he doesn't think that's wrong. Therefore, it's okay. No, no, no. God spells a lot of things out. Because you get to verse 29, and he says, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now get this. Here's it gives us a fornication. Fornication is fornication. I don't need to define it for you. I got news for you. It doesn't make a difference how much the couple may be in love. The wrath of God's against it. 
Do you understand that? The wrath of God is against it. He's not done. He says uh, wickedness. How about this one? Covetousness. That's not being satisfied with what you have. That's desiring what your neighbor has, the car your neighbor has, the wife your neighbor has, the uh, money your neighbor has. Not being satisfied. A covetous man is an idolater, the Bible says. And the wrath of God is against covetousness. We just had a revival at our place, and I'd never heard anybody spend an entire message on covetousness, but this preacher preached an entire message. The whole subject was covetousness, and man, he made it exceedingly sinful too. Maliciousness, that's a, just a bent to do evil. That's a, you know, sometimes you see that in the eyes of your kids, and uh, you give them a spanking and you go on. In the eyes of an adult, man, those people, they're dangerous, and they're dangerous as neighbors. He's full of envy, murder, debate, debate. Yes, debate. According to Galatians chapter 5, debate is a work of the flesh. Down south, it used to be very common for Church of Christ and Baptists to get together in an area and to debate baptism. Now, let me tell you the problem with debate. In debate, for instance, in that particular case with the Campbellites and with the Baptists, you've got the Baptists allowing the error of baptismal regeneration up on the same platform with truth. And whenever you elevate error up to the same platform with truth, you have now elevated error and you have diminished truth as though it's decided by the ability to debate. Who normally wins a debate? Any of these debating societies are out there. Those people can take both sides of the issue and debate either side. The winner's not decided by the facts. The winner's decided by the best debater. Debate is a work of the flesh, and the wrath of God is against it. Well, what else does he say? Malignity, whisperers. Today, our whispering is done on Facebook, Instagram. I'll tell you what, there are so many wicked Christian Facebook sites out there. I tell our people, you're going to be on Bookface, I'm sorry, Facebook. You're going to be on Facebook. Make it a Christian Facebook page. Make it one that honors God. Keep all cursing off of it. Keep filthy pictures off it. I'm talking about, well, I'm talking about pictures of Christians dressed immodestly, including their own family. Be a good testimony for Christ. Anyway, let me move on here. Uh, let's see. Debate, deceit. You know what deceit is? Deceit is getting a person to believe a lie without actually telling a lie. That's deceit. Deceit is not lying. It's just get a person. You know, that's like some lady's just got her hair done and she wants to show it off. And she comes in and I'm sorry, it's just ugly. And you say, how do you, she said, how do you like my hair? Wow, that sure is something. With that smile on my face, I've probably gotten her to believe that it looks fine. And it doesn't. <laughs> I use that on babies too. <laughs> anyway. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, 
boasters, inventors of evil things. Look at this one. Disobedient to parents. It's in the same list with murderers. It's in the same list with fornicators. Disobedient to parents. This is not a little thing. When children are brought up in a home where they can just openly disobey mom or dad and there not be consequences. The wrath of God is against it. This is a serious matter. Without understanding. Covenant breakers. That's people who can't keep their word. Without natural affection. You know who that is. Isn't it interesting that homosexuality is not a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5? Do you know why? Because according to Romans chapter 1, God has to give up on a person twice before they'll even consider it. You say, God made me that way. There's a sense in which that's true. But it's because of their unrepentant sin that they... It's without natural affection. The flesh never naturally goes toward that sin. Never naturally. Study it out. Read it out. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. So the wrath of God is against every one of those things. So when was the last time that you trembled at the word of God? The sad thing is there's a number of things in that list. Eh, We don't like them, but that's just a character trait. It's not that bad. But the wrath of God's against it. The wrath of God is against it. Why wouldn't we tremble at that? In John 3, 3, God said, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're lost today, I want you to get this. God means what he says. You can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven but by Jesus Christ. If you die without Christ, you will go to a sinner's hell and you will burn for eternity because God means what he says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Either he meant it, and it's true, or he's a liar. And he meant it. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. All right, how about this one? I'm I'm, I'm about to finish. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. When was the last time you trembled? Remember, God said in Isaiah, this is the man I'm going to look to. The man of a humble and contrite heart who trembleth at my word. Notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, whatever he says next is something that grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gave us his word The Holy Spirit who told us about Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit of God who convicted us of our sin. For when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. For the Bible says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Holy Spirit, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost of God? And you're not your own. I can grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, how? Okay, he tells us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor 
and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Is there a believer that you have a bitter spirit about? Maybe a preacher, maybe a deacon, maybe a person at one time that was your best friend, a sister or a brother in Christ that you used to have good fellowship with. And now when you see them, if you have an opportunity to go the other way so that they don't see you, man, you go the other way. When you think about them at night, you say, man, I can't believe they did what they did. You are the one grieving the Holy Spirit of God. You say, preacher, you don't know what they did. No, I don't have to. God tells us about forgiveness. He says we're to forgive them as Christ forgave us. You say, preacher, they don't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. And you're to forgive them. Forgiveness is taking it off their account. For my forgiveness, he says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He's taken my sins off my account. And when I forgive people of what I perceive that they have done to me, I have to take it off their account. That means I give up the right to bring it up again. It's off the account. If I bring it up again, then I didn't forgive them. That's tough, preach. That's hard. I know, and that's why our churches are in such a mess. There is so much bitterness and unforgiveness. The Spirit of God is grieved. So lost people come. They sit in our services unmoved because we have grieved the very one whose job it is to convict them of their sin. And when was the last time that we trembled at the Word of God? To this man will I look to, he that is of a humble and contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.